And now we're going to the, the other part of the chemistry, <coughs> which starts getting a little bit more complex because we enter to what we call biochemistry. Biochemistry is that part of the chemistry that studies all these atoms, molecules, compounds, chemical reactions that happen in living matter, in biological systems, in cells, in organisms. And so we are going to just, as we said before, just consider a group of atoms, molecules, and compounds and a group of chemical reactions. So the, the field is actually a little limited, but it's getting more complex because it's to see all the chemical reactions that happen in a biological organism, which has many other factors to consider. I gave an example last time of this um, piece of bread that you put it in a glass of water and that piece of bread made of carbohydrates will dissolve. Yes, it will dissolve, but if you do that inside your mouth, your mouth contains an enzyme, saliva in the saliva, which accelerate that reaction. So that's same components, but chemical reaction that happen inside a biological organism is completely different. So that's what the biochemistry studies. We can describe um, all these chemicals in two types, or classify them in two types, inorganic and organic compounds. So we're going to describe some of them uh, today, uh, like the water, some salts, acids, bases, uh, and also we'll start describing other organic compounds like carbohydrates, lipids, proteins. Well, all these compounds, they relate to each other and participate in different reactions that will be very important and necessary for the maintenance of life. The following week, ne next week, we'll start studying the metabolism of the cell, all these chemical reactions that lead to production of energy, consumption of uh, glucose, oxidation of glucose, and so on. Let's start talking about some inorganic compounds, like the water. <coughs> Very important, 60 to 80% of the volume of the cell is water. When we get to kidney physiology, we will see that all the body is described or divided in what we call compartments. And Compartments, it's a, um, an idea that we have to figure out how the cells are arranged and so we have an intracellular compartment and extracellular compartment. And water is a very important component of both. Water is important because of these characteristics that we will study one by one and give some examples of how the water works and uh, it's very important for the maintenance of life. Like high heat capacity, high heat of vaporization, solvent properties, reactivity, and cushioning. Regarding high, high, high heat capacity and high heat of vaporization, 
One of the reasons why the water is very important for our body and for our physiology is its high heat capacity because the, the, the water is able to absorb and release heat and the water itself will not change its temperature much. That's the reason why we sweat when we exercise. Because the water will help to equalize the temperature. We're increasing our temperature because of the exercise, because of the energy released by the chemical reactions happening in our muscle. We sweat and that water that comes out with the sweat will help to control the temperature of our body, to release heat in this case. And in that way, the temperature of the body is maintained. In the same way, we are facing fever, we sweat. We sweat, in that way, <coughs> the heat is released to the environment and we control our temperature. High heat of vaporization. Before the water gets into the gas state, it has to be boiled, it has to be heated up. So we don't lose water by evaporation too much, otherwise for that to happen, we'll have to boil our body and the water has to vaporize. It will vaporize in a very small amount. To vaporize in large amounts, we need to heat it up to the boiling point. So those are mechanisms, important mechanisms of water in relation to maintenance of the body temperature. It's a very effective cooling mechanism. We still use the physical means we call when someone has fever and we order a water bath to control the temperature especially when the temperature rise is very high and very dangerous, it gets very dangerous, like in cases of heat stroke, like those people that exercise at noon, a very sunny and hot day, they can get in a heat stroke, stroke, and the temperature is very hard to control. The water helps, water, but not from the body, but from outside, we help to control the temperature. Another characteristic is the solvent properties. We have studied the chemical bonds that are present in the water molecule, polar, covalent bond. The water has, the water molecule has a part which has a partial negative charge and another end that has a positive, partial positive charge. And thanks to that purpose is, and thanks to that characteristic is that the water is a solvent because it's able to get in between some compounds like salt and dissolve them, separate them like ionic bonds are separated by these <coughs> molecules of water. And the proteins, we'll see that proteins, which are large molecules, they are present everywhere in our body, they also mix with water. There are like layers of, mole uh, of molecules of water in between these molecules called proteins. And that's why proteins usually look like a gelatin, like a colloid. And the water, solvent properties of the water help to transport many things. Glucose is dissolved in the water. Electrolytes are dissolved in the water and they are taken anywhere and everywhere in the body 
by the circulatory system. That's an example, a graphic that shows how the water molecule dissolves a salt, in this case, sodium chloride. You see how these water molecules are getting around and surrounding the sodium, which has a positive charge, and the red part of the molecule of water, which is the oxygen side, has a partial negative charge. And that's why it's attracted to the, to the sodium, which has a positive charge. And in the same way, the chloride, which is a negative charge, uh, is attracted by the positive end of the water molecule, which is a hydrogen. So in that way, the water will dissolve these crystals of sodium chloride, salt, common salt, that we, uh, that we see in this arrangement. Reactivity. This is necessary. The water is necessary for many chemical reactions. Chemical reactions like the one we see here in this uh, diagram. What type of chemical reaction is this? We see this molecule which combines with water and now we have two different molecules. According to the well, uh, chemical reaction that we studied, how we call that chemical reaction. You have two molecules or something, or something, I mean two units or atoms together, and after adding water, it breaks down into separate. It's a decomposition, correct? It's a decomposition uh, reaction. And this particular chemical reaction is called hydrolysis. Hydrolysis because the water is implied. So this compound, which is a disaccharide, we'll see that when we get to the carbohydrates. Disaccharide is a carbohydrate that has two units, as we see here, it's rings. Combining with water, the water will, in a way, break down the disaccharide into two monosaccharides. And if you see these letters are in red, look for these letters here in the second part of the equation, you'll find those atoms connected to each of those molecules, so these uh, uh, monosaccharides. That's what we call a hydrolysis reaction. Now, actually, this reaction may happen the other way around. And that will be a dehydration, a dehydration reaction. That's one uh, of the important components or features of the water molecule, reactivity. Cushioning. Cushioning is important because there are fluids in our body that help to protect some structures. And one of them is what we call the cerebrospinal fluid, or CSF. Cerebrospinal fluid is a fluid that is present in the nervous system. It has a special particular way of circulation, pathway of circulation, and it is surrounding the brain and the spinal cord. And if we have a trauma, like hitting our head against the wall or shaking the head too much, well, the brain and the spinal cord are very soft 
tissues and the soft organs. Has anyone seen a brain by chance? Have you seen a fresh brain? Embalmed, like from the sheep brain that we dissect usually in biology. Fresh brain is a completely different thing. And it's very soft tissue. If, uh, just by curiosity, look for brains and go to some meat market, especially Mexican meat market, and you ask for sesos, which is brain, and sometimes they have it there. And just ask for it, and I see it, touch it. It's so soft, even softer than gelatin. So imagine that inside your head, and hitting your head against the wall. And that will just crush and squeeze and destroy. Unless it's protected, and it is protected by this fluid, cerebrospinal fluid, as we see in the diagram. The blue part around the brain is that CSF, which is better seen here, all this blue part surrounding the tissues here. And if you hit your head against a the wall, then, well, if it's very hard, you probably have damage anyway. That's what we call a contusion, contusion, or con concussion is not concussion with, uh, with teeth. Where we see actually a bruise in the brain tissue. But that doesn't happen because of the presence of the cerebrospinal fluid. And the same thing around the spinal cord, down the vertebral column. So that's another important uh, thing about water. Joints. And the joints, like the knee joint. Knee joint is a very important uh, joint of the body because. The knee joint supports the weight, most of the weight of your body. And there is fluid called synovial fluid, as well as in any other joint of the body. But this particular joint is very important. It contains fluid in enough amounts. If it doesn't, then you have problems. Like people with osteoarthrosis and osteoarthritis have. We have decreased amount of fluid, and they start having pain. The components of the joint, the bones, they get damaged and they get uh, make it a very serious thing. Questions to this point. Okay, next part is about salts. Salts are ionic compounds. Best example, sodium chloride, maybe potassium chloride, and many other salts. These are very simple, just one, one to one. There may be complex like two to one or three, depending on the valence, electrons, the number of electrons that participate in chemical reaction and the properties of each element. But the salts are compounds that get dissolved in the water. And when they get dissolved, they separate into cations, which are the positively charged molecules like sodium, as we see in that graph, and anions, which are negatively charged, like the chloride here, both surrounded by molecules of water. And you see how the oxygen part of the molecule of water, which is the red part, it's attracted to sodium, and the positive part of the water molecule, the hydrogens, are attracted to the chloride. And that way, we have these salts, cations and anions. Also called electrolytes. Electrolytes. 
Electrolytes because of the property that they have of conduction, electrical conduction, when they are in solution. That is the principle of a battery. The batteries that we use in our cars and contain fluid inside and the salt and the electrolyzed ions of different types will conduct electricity and actually will provide electrical current for the function of the engine. Electrolytes are really important for, like sodium, potassium, calcium, iron is another electrolyte or iron. But especially sodium, potassium, and calcium, when we get to the nervous system, and in 48 we do the nervous system, we're going to do physiology of the nervous system, and we'll see how the nervous system works in terms of electricity. Small amounts of electrical current called action potentials. And that's a message. That's how the brain orders the muscle to move, thanks to this electrical message. With that electricity, how it is produced? By the movement of sodium, potassium, calcium. Muscular contraction, also, it's electrical current. Calcium is more important there. The heart has an electrical conduction system. Calcium is important there. So this is crucial. It is crucial, the presence of these electrolytes. And we measure this. We measure the levels of electrolytes in the blood, in the plasma, whenever we suspect some type of problem. And that's the reason why when people exercise, they need to be hydrated or rehydrated, not only with water, but also with electrolytes. That's how we drink the Gatorade exercise, which is actually not crucial, but important, that you get hydrated with something that contains electrolytes. If your exercise is a very heavy exercise, that implies a lot of loss of, of these electrolytes. Usually, our body is able to control the levels of sodium and potassium, and we don't need to rehydrate every time, but after a very heavy exercise or during the day we need to keep the balance. Other salts in the body like calcium carbonate, which is described here as CaCO3, calcium carbonate, calcium phosphates, those types of salts are present in the bone. The bone is hard, the bone is like stone, like a rock, it's just crystals of salts, calcium carbonate. We have anywhere, we have both, those are salts. Can they be dissolved? Yes, they can be dissolved. That's how we need the calcium that we, we get the calcium that we need sometimes. If for some reason we need more calcium because we are deficient in calcium for some reason, we start taking it from the bones. We have a lot of bones, we have a lot of cells of calcium to keep the homeostasis, as we described before in previous lectures. Next part, salts, acids, and bases. They are also electrolytes. They dissociate in water. And acids are defined, acids are defined. We know how, what an acid is. We know how what it feels, an acid. It's a very strong 
uh, chemical substance or compound that is able to destroy many other things, burns objects sometimes. Axes are defined as proton donors, proton donors. They release hydrogen ions expressed like the letter H with a positive subscript. Per protons, not, no electrons. Remember that the hydrogens, the hydrogen atom has one electron and one proton. And if you remove that electron, or the, if the atom of hydrogen loses the electron that it has, it's only one electron, it will just remain with one proton. So if I say hydrogen ion, it's the same as I was saying, as if I were saying a proton. Because the hydrogen without the electron it just has one proton. That's why we say proton donors. Like hydrochloric acid, which we see here. Hydrochloric acid in solution, hydrochloric acid donates protons, which is an expression for release, giving away, release and donate. Hydrochloric acid, when in solution, it releases hydrogen ions plus the chloride, which is the other component of the hydrochloric acid. That's the definition of an acid, proton donors. Some examples of acids are here, hydrochloric acid. This is acetic acid and carbonic acid. Carbonic acid especially is really important because it will dissociate in hydrogens plus this ion called the carbonate, which we will see how it works in the respiratory system, how it works in the kidney physiology. And this carbonic acid dissociates into hydrogen plus. this other component, which is called the carbonate. We'll see that chemical reaction again in another part. And here is just an expression of two um, squares showing hydrochloric acid and how it, in solution, all these molecules of HCl will dissociate into hydrogens plus chloride. That's what happens and that's how we call Hydrochloric acid, a proton donor. A base, instead, is defined as a proton acceptor. Because when in solution, they pick up hydrogens, which can be in the solution also. Or if we add hydrogens to that solution, these bases will pick them up. Like an example is the sodium hydroxide. Sodium hydroxide, which is, which is uh, NaOH here. In solution, the, the sodium hydroxide dissociates into sodium and hydroxyl ion. This OH negative is called hydroxyl ion. And we see here an example put in sodium hydroxide in solution, it dissociates into sodium plus hydroxyl ions. That is a base. 
that is a base. And why we say proton acceptors? Because if I add this solution, if I add to this solution some hydrogen ions, they will combine with the hydroxyls. That's why we say a base is a proton acceptor because it's accepted, picking up hydrogens that may be free in the solution. <coughs> Some examples of bases are shown, like the carbonate ion is a base because it accepts protons, it combines with protons, and if it combines with protons, it will give place to carbonic acid. So it's part of a chemical reaction. We see that in buffers. Ammonia, NH3, is another base which accepts protons. And when we talk about acids and bases, we need to define what pH is. pH is a way to measure the acid-base concentration. It's actually a scale that measures the amount of hydrogen ions that are in a solution. pH is a measurement of the concentration of hydrogen ions in a solution. More hydrogens present in the solution, more acidic the solution will be. And how we use this pH? Well, the pH is a, a scale that is based on the mathematical calculation using logarithms. Uh, the logarithm is a function that expresses the potency of a number. And since, when we talk about hydrogen in a solution, we're talking about very small amount of hydrogen, like a concentration of 0 to work with these numbers all the time. That's the reason we use a logarithm. And what the logarithm does is take the potency. A little bit of math here, how we can express this number with a base of 10, like this, with a potency. You have 100 is equal to this. And you have 1,000 and it's equal to this. So the potency is the number of zeros that the number has. But if we talk about decimals, now this turns into a negative number. And it will be like this. And what the logarithm does is take this number. That's that number. But with a negative sign in front. So at the end, what we have is just a whole number that goes from 0 to 14, that we say here. The negative logarithm of the concentration of hydrogens then is expressed from the range from 0 to 14. 
And what it is, is the amount of hydrogen ions, the concentration of hydrogen ions that we have in a solution. For instance, pH 5 is 10 times more acidic than pH 6. The difference is 1. We're talking about in, in units of powers of 10. In powers of 10. And that's what we can say this. pH 5 is 10 times more acidic than pH 6. So when we use a pH scale, the numbers, think about that. It's not a unit. It's not one to one. It's actually 10 times more or 10 times less. In physiology, we define this in a different way. We actually go into the details of the chemical equation and the calculation of the logarithm and in the biological solution. Uh, but we just need to remember that, the scale from 0 to 14, and how that is expressed. And how we divide. I mean, what are our definitions of what is acidic and what is basic and what is neutral? Seven is a number for neutral solutions. What it means neutral? They have the equal number of hydrogens and hydroxyls. So it's not acidic, nor basic. Example, water. Pure water. Pure water is neutral, has pH 7. And as we see here, pH 7 equals concentration of hydrogens 10 to the minus 7 particles. Acidic. Acidic is expressed with the number pH scale from 0 to 6.99. Why so exact? Why those numbers? Because a very mild change in these numbers would represent a huge change in actual units. Remember, we said difference pH 5 to pH 6 is 10 times. So a decimal in the pH scale is actually a big difference. An alkaline or basic solution from the range from 7.01 7 to 14. pH of the blood is 7.35 to 7.45. That's the normal pH of the blood. Very narrow range, very exact range. Because if someone has 7.31, that is abnormal. And it will have, will give patients some symptoms. Some functions will be affected just by that change of the pH. Now remember, the decimal change, decimal difference, is very important because the scale is a logarithm in powers of 10. Some examples, you have this example in your books. Examples of different types of solutions with their pH and the scale from 0 to 14. Blood is here, pH 7.4. 7.4 is the average between 7.35 and 7.45. If one expresses as average, will be 7.4. We have the different. Um, pH of different things. Uh, some important things to remember, like pH 2 
lemon juice, but also the gastric juice, the acid from the stomach. It's a pH too, very acidic. Many bacteria cannot stand that pH. That's one of the reasons. When we eat salads, for instance, sometimes, and you cannot guarantee that sometimes the salads are completely free of germs. But they're not. All salads have some degree of bacteria. But as long as you have a good acid in your stomach, your pH is 2 all the time, and it won't change, all those bacteria will not stand that pH and will die. And you don't get an infection. Yes? Why does it use, why do you react so badly when you have food poisoning if your acid in your stomach is so strong? Because your acid can also stand a number of bacteria. It can also kill a number of bacteria. Like, it depends on the load of bacteria, the number of colonies. And there are actually studies uh, done uh, with that purpose um, many years ago. It was not so ethical because they were they always used as example of ethics in research. What they did was to give different, different uh, foods or solutions containing different amount of bacteria to volunteers. Um, and then it says, who got sick? Who got a food poisoning or diarrhea or infection? And they determine what is the amount of bacteria that the stomach can kill. Beyond that point, then you, there's a high risk or high chance that you get uh, food poisoning. And there are some details in those studies that were not so uh, good in terms, of, you know, in terms of ethics, but uh, uh, they always mention this principle of uh, gastric juice uh, going against the bacteria. And there are some examples, for instance, people with uh, gastritis, chronic gastritis, or ulcers, they have problems that will change the pH of the stomach, actually increase it, will make it less acidic. And these people have more chance of developing contamination or infection with some types of bacteria. Some other examples here, going to the other side, with bleach is basic, alkaline. pH of the urine, which is not mentioned here, but pH of the urine has a, long, a very wide range. It may go from three or four up to five, up to seven or eight sometimes. Uh, it depends on types of uh, food that we eat during the day, types of drinks, and uh, it's very dynamic during the day. The amount of water and so on. Okay, continue with the pH. Another important aspect of studying the pH is the importance of buffers, chemical buffers. There is a reaction called neutralization that we see when we study the acids and bases. The neutralization reaction is expressed here. When we mix an acid and a base, a displacement reaction will occur. Sodium hydroxide plus hydrochloric acid. Now we see that the chloride has been replaced, or the, uh, the chloride is replacing the hydroxyl here. And the hydroxyl combines with the hydrogen to give one molecule of water. And we say neutralization because at the end, mixing an acid and a base, we will have salt and water, which will dissociate again in sodium plus chloride. That's a different solution. 
So all this is studying in chemistry and it's called neutralization. The importance of this is that these reactions happen when some solutions called buffers will help to control the pH of a solution. The principle here, we apply this principle, chemical principle to biological systems, is that first, if we know, and if we know that the blood pH is 7.4, let's say, and the second thing is we know that physiology and many chemical reactions in our body need to have that pH 7.4. Well, third, is very important that we maintain that pH of 7.4. So we need some mechanisms to control this and keep the balance. That's why the buffers come in place here. The buffers can resist and change, bring back to normal or balanced levels, the pH, the amount of acid or bases. How do buffers work? Well, the buffers can release hydrogens if the pH rises. If pH rises means going above seven, which means the solution is turning basic. If that happens, the buffers will release hydrogens. If re hydrogens are released, they will combine with hydroxyls and then the pH will go back to normal, or will lower. And if the pH falls, which means there is an increased amount of hydrogens in the solution, well, the buffer will bind hydrogens, bind hydrogens, and the pH will go back to normal levels. So it's a, it's a thing of homeostasis. It's a thing of homeostasis. That's why the buffers are very important in the physiology. And especially when we are facing a strong acids or strong bases. What do you mean strong? Strong means that when these acids or bases are in solution, they are completely dissociated. That's what a strong base or acid is. A weak acid or weak base is the one that is partially, slightly dissociated. And if we think about it, strong is because if it's completely dissociated, there will be more hydrogens. And therefore, there will be stronger. Or bases, there will be more hydroxyl. So weak, it has, is slightly dissociated. So it has few amounts of hydrogen, a few amount of hydroxyls, and it will make it weaker. And here, this reaction again. The reaction that I wrote in, um, in the different slide. Carbonic acid. Carbonic acid in one side, dissociated to the carbonate and hydrogen ion. Look at this, we call hydrogen ion, we call it proton. Hydrogen ion or proton. This is the most important buffer system that we have in our blood, in the plasma. The bicarbonate, carbonic acid system, buffer system. Why? Because we usually have this chemical reaction happening in our blood all the time. And you see here, bi-directional, this chemical reaction happens in both directions, depending on what the conditions are. If we have a rise in the pH, the reaction goes in this direction, releasing hydrogens. But if there's a drop in the pH, reaction will happen capturing protons, accepting protons, and go in this direction. 
This is the buffer that controls the pH of our blood. Give you another example. Sometimes people try to kill themselves themselves uh, taking pills. Pills, some of them, some of these drugs that they take, or maybe of different types, maybe uh, uh, sedatives or even anti-inflammatories or aspirin, whatever pill. But some of them, they are they have acidic properties. And when they take them in huge amounts and they are absorbed, they get to the blood, to the plasma, and they dissociate, releasing hydrogens. If that happens, what will happen with the pH? Will it go lower than seven or higher than seven? Hmm? It will go higher than, higher than seven? If I'm releasing hydrogens to the blood, I'm increasing the amount of hydrogens it will go lower than seven. Remember, the number lower than seven means acidic, more hydrogens present. So it's a kind of backwards. Well, these people will take a lot of pills, and they have lots, tons of hydrogens being released to the plasma. They get to the emergency unconscious, we measure the pH of the blood, and it will be very acidic, because there's a lot of hydrogens. Now, the buffer systems, are supposed to control that, yeah. But the buffer systems also have a, a limit. If you overload your body with tons of hydrogen, well, the buffer will not work completely. And you will have an intoxication. You will have a, a lack of consciousness is one of the symptoms of this low pH to a very pathologic levels. What do we do? Well, we give medications to neutralize the hydrogen. Carbonate. We give bicarbonate. Bicarbonate and neutralize that with a buffer. We are applying all these principles. And with that, and of course, other <coughs> treatments that depend on the type of drug, and we can help actually to control this problem. Questions to this point? This is just another example, just a simple system showing the effect of a buffer. We have this compound here, which is a uh, name as A and AN plus hydrogen. And this compound is dissolved and partially dissociated into AN. Well, AN with a negative charge. If we add hydrogens from a strong acid, what's gonna happen? Those hydrogens are going to bind the a free AN with negative, and therefore will decrease the amount of hydrogens. It works like a buffer. And in this direction, if we add hydroxyls from a strong base, well, they, will, they will combine with their hydrogens that are free here, or remove hydrogens from here, and will combine making water molecules. And those water molecules now present here will be added to the solution and help to control the pH. So that's how a buffer works. If the pH rises, if the pH rises, then it will release hydrogens. And the pH lowers, it will remove hydrogens from the solution.
Okay, now let's go and describe some organic molecules. Organic molecules. Organic molecules are, by definition, molecules that contain carbon, with exceptions of carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide, which are inorganic compounds. Another, um, another characteristic of the organic compounds is that usually we find covalent bonds. Taking the carbon, for instance, the carbon is electroneutral because it won't gain or lose electrons. It will only share. Remember, the carbon has four electrons in the valence shell, and it's hard to lose four or gain four. That implies a lot of energy. And that's why the carbon shares electrons with other molecules. And that's why the carbon is an important component of the, of the organic uh, group of molecules. Covalent bonds are preferred, and four covalent bonds are possible when combined with other elements, four electrons. Carbohydrates, lipids, proteins, nucleic acids, we're going to describe main features of, these, uh, of all these compounds, carbohydrates, lipids, proteins, and nucleic acids. All of them contain carbon. All of them contain covalent bonds, hydrogen bonds. So we'll see all of them when we describe these uh, organic compounds. Many organic compounds are polymers, which means long chains of single units. The units are called monomers. There are like bricks, like building blocks. And these organic compounds, since they are long chains to be produced or synthesized, that happens through chemical reactions that are called dehydration. And broken down by hydrolysis. We saw one example in one of the slides. Disaccharide was broken down into two units, monosaccharides by hydrolysis. That's another thing about water. We are, uh, we are told that we should drink water, lots of water every day because we need it. We need it for many things and also for the production of molecules. The dehydration synthesis. We produce long chains of proteins, carbohydrates, using water. These are examples of these reactions. Dehydration synthesis. We have two monomers, two monomers that will get together and bound after one of them loses a hydroxyl the other one loses a hydrogen. But these two, they are combined into molecule of water. And we have the two monomers now linked by a covalent bond right in the place where these hydroxyl and oxygen or hydrogen were removed. And the water molecule is released. So it's like this is dehydrated because the water molecule is being lost. Hydrolysis. 
we saw that example previously. We had the two monomers linked by a covalent bond, adding one molecule of water will separate these two monomers, restoring the hydroxyl and hydrogens here. And this is an example with a particular molecule here. And with the names, this is actually two carbohydrates, glucose and fructose. When combined, we have a molecule of sucrose, which are two units, they are linked by this covalent bond here, mediated by oxygen. And also notice that there's a bidirectional reaction because this reaction may happen in either direction, hydrolysis or dehydration, depending on what we need. If we need glucose, we need to break down sucrose to get glucose. But if we are not, if we don't need glucose right now, we can store this glucose and combine it with a fructose in a molecule of sucrose. So that's why this chemical reaction is expressed with two directions. That's usually the case of organic compounds. Dehydration, hydrolysis, and the production or breaking down, breakdown of these molecules. So let's start describing carbohydrates. Also known as sugars or starch and starch. contains carbohydrate and oxygen in a two to one ratio. This is the generic formula for a carbohydrate. C6H12O6. Hydrogen and oxygen are in a two to one ratio. We can describe up to three types of carbohydrates. Monosaccharides. Mono one, saccharide means sugar. So monosaccharide means one single sugar. And this is actually the monomers, the building blocks of a longer, or longer molecules of carbohydrates. Disaccharides to trisaccharides. We actually don't describe it as trisaccharides. More than two, we just say polysaccharides, which are actually not three. They're usually long, many, many units of uh, of sugars. So we can say the polymers are made, made up of monomers of monosaccharides. Let's start with monosaccharides. Simple sugars from three to seven carbon atoms. The generic formula is there. The N refers to the number of carbon atoms. They are the monomers. Examples, pentoses, exoses. Pentoses means sugars that contain five carbons. From penta, that means five. Pentose, a sugar that contains five carbons. And hexoses, or hexose sugars, are sugars that contain six carbons. Pentose sugars, example, ribose and deoxyribose, which are present in nucleic acid. Ribose and RNA, deoxyribose and DNA. DNA. Hexoses, example, glucose, which is the 
one that we commonly call the blood sugar or glucose. It's a hexose, six carbons. These are some figures or chemical configurations of hexoses and pentoses. We have the pentoses, uh, deoxyribose and ribose. And you see they are expressed, they can be expressed in two ways. In chemistry we use either way. One of the ways is just a long chain. We see the carbons in a row, single line. Well, you can express it like this, like a ring. Like a ring that actually is expressed like a polygon. If it's a pentose, you see the pentagon here. If, if it's a hexose, then you see a, a hexagon here. Hexose sugars, glucose, fructose, galactose. These are the five type of um, monosaccharides that we have in biological systems. These are the ones you need to remember. Disaccharides, combination of two monosaccharides. And the second item here, it says, too large to pass through cell membranes. Well, if we go and see how the cells use these molecules, the cells can only use monosaccharides and usually glucose. So the disaccharides, the disaccharides have to be broken down into monosaccharides so the cells can use it. But we can find other disaccharides like sucrose, maltose, lactose. The sucrose is a common table sugar. Maltose, lactose, maltose is fine, and lactose are found in the milk in the form of disaccharides. But when we consume those products, we have our body has to break down those into monosaccharides. In this way, we have the reaction here. If we consume sucrose, once inside our body, the sucrose has to be broken down into glucose plus fructose. Now the, uh, the cells can use the glucose. Lactose, I think in the next, we have this, yeah. Here we have the three examples of disaccharides, sucrose, maltose, and lactose. Sucrose is a combination of glucose plus fructose. Maltose is a combination of two molecules of glucose. And lactose is a combination of a molecule of galactose and glucose. Some people are lactose intolerant. <coughs> They cannot drink milk because it's, they have bloating, they have problems with digestion and so forth. Lactose has to be broken down into galactose and glucose, so you can use the glucose. But we said the cells cannot use disaccharides. And to break down this galactose, this lactose into galactose and glucose, well, we need water. Plus an enzyme, which is a lactase. People that have deficiency of this enzyme, lactase, they are the ones that we call lactose intolerant. Because they cannot break this down. The lactose that they consume is not broken down. So what's going to happen? 
when this lactose gets to the intestine, there's no lactase. It's not broken down. The glucose cannot use those. And this lactose is not used. Instead, it interferes with the normal functioning of the intestine, producing bloating, producing problems with digestion, even <coughs> diarrhea, because the lactose cannot be broken. And polysaccharides. Polysaccharides are polymers of the building blocks, the monosaccharides. They are formed by dehydration synthesis. Starch and glycogen. Starch and glycogen are the ones to remember. Starch, carbohydrates, um, in the storage form that is used uh, by plants. And glycogen is a storage form that animals have and we have as humans in different organs of our body. Polysaccharides are long chain, long chains of monosaccharides. They cannot be dissolved. They cannot be dissolved. They're not very soluble. Where we have glycogen? Well, we have glycogen reserves stored in the liver, in the muscles, basically, these two organs, liver and muscle. We have storage of glycogen. And we see the representation of the molecule of glycogen as long chains, long chains of glucose units, all of them linked by covalent bonds, linked by that oxygen there. And we, we, we need to use glucose. And this is what happens when uh, we start the day and we're not eating anything, we're fasting. Well, your body needs energy. Your body needs energy, and the glucose has to provide that energy. But you're not eating. The glucose that you have in your blood is just enough amount for your brain, and your kidneys, and your heart to work. But you need to move the muscles. You need more glucose. Where you take it from? From your liver. What do you have in your liver? Glycogen, this molecule. How we get the glucose? Well, you start breaking down here by hydrolysis. Water plus this part, and we start releasing glucose units that are used by our cells. Glycogen in the liver can be used in that way. Glycogen from the muscle is the one that is quickly available right away. But then we go to the liver and get more glycogen. But then later, when you have the chance to eat, you'll be very hungry and will crave for carbohydrates. I mean, how good it is to, to eat a, a piece of cake or chocolate cake after you exercise a lot. It's really good. It's just a natural tendency of your body saying, we need to restore the glycogen that you just used. But that's what happens. But usually we don't get the sense of this exactly. And uh, instead of eating just what we need, we, we eat what we want. And you start eating a lot of chocolate cake. And you got an excess of sugar now, which replaces and restore the glycogen, but then you have an excess that have a different destination. Questions, comments to this point? Okay, let's stop it here. Let's stop it here. And